Just out of curiosity, how many of you are eldest siblings in your family? Yeah, I see the fizz too. All right, yeah, that's a, that's a good percentage. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend last week about being the eldest. We're both eldest in our family systems, and it was hilarious to sh- share stories about how things were growing up. You know, as the eldest child, which I am, um, you're kind of the experiment child. And now that I'm a parent myself, I realize um, that my parents were just, like, I'm the practice child of the family. Parents of eldest children literally have no experience for every day of their eldest child's life. Like, Sophia is 12 years, 7 months, and a few, you know, whatever, 10 days. Um, But tomorrow, I would have never parented a child that's 12 years, 7 months, and 11 days. Like, it's all brand new every single day. And that usually means keeping things locked down. Early curfews, early bedtime, stricter on what TV shows and movies we can watch, and then there's the car. The car, the micromanagement of the car. Keep it clean, full of gas. Is that a scratch? What do you mean you didn't check the tire pressure? But then you get older and you come back from university or maybe that first career job and you're there for a visit and little brother and sister now in their late teens have their feet on the furniture and they're staying up till all hours of the night and they park the car crooked in the parking lot. Is this a bizarro universe where mom and dad aren't upset about these things anymore? You know what I'm talking about. Listen, there's a lot of great, (laughs) because you're not an oldest, there's a lot of great things about being the eldest, but it does lead to some potential hang-ups in life, like an overactive sense of feeling responsible for yourself and everyone around you. Probably comes from taking care of younger siblings. Sorry, Sophia, be easy with me. You learn that early on, if you follow the rules and do what you're told, things will go smoothly. And you develop a frustration when others don't follow those rules because it messes everything up and you usually have to fix it. And the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring Luke's, or or Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel. And we've looked at it once from the perspective of the younger son and once from the perspective of the father And this evening, you guessed it, we're going to be looking at the perspective of the older son. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his life between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying out here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and and in your sight. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hands and sandals on his feet, and then bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost, and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never even given me a goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your flesh with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, child, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live. He was lost, and now he is found. Lord, I thank you for this profound teaching for the impact it must have had to your first hearers, for the impact it continues to have on us in the 21st century. And I pray, even though it may be familiar to me and to many, that you would open it up afresh for us. And by your grace and mercy, maybe even open up afresh our own wounds and our own need for this healing salve to take root in us. Have mercy, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Over the past few weeks, we've had fun, I think, looking at the cultural context of this parable. We've come to somewhat understand, at least as best we can from our vantage point, how offensive it was for the younger son to dishonor his father by asking for part of his inheritance up front and then squandering it all in a distant land. And because we've tried to grasp that offense, we've also come closer, I think, to understanding the radical power and audaciousness of the Father's forgiveness, it would have been unlike anything Jesus' audience would have expected to hear. And it was certainly more radical than the older son in the story was willing to, come to, to accept. As the story goes, the older son is coming home from supervising some work in the fields. It was probably a walk home he had made every day of his life since he had come of age, at least. And while his brother had sold off part of the family land and left the country, the older son was dutifully at home, working hard every day to keep the estate functioning. Through hard work and responsibility, the older son found a place, a role, a position in the family. He is the responsible one, the one who takes it upon himself to hold things together, He is the etiquette follower, the socially acceptable one. He is probably well-liked and well-respected around town, among his peers, and among the elders. He's a company man. He is, by all outward definitions, a righteous man. But this time, something is different on this walk home. 
There's music and raised voices. There's joy coming from within the villa. And as he approaches, he asks one of the family servants. He inquired, what's going on in there? After all, he had not been consulted on the use of these resources. He had not been notified about the guest list. What if things weren't ready? What if things weren't cleaned? What if things weren't prepared properly? And the servant replies, which I imagine, I'm just going to go for it because I would be excited, with an excited voice. Your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And here's where that outward show of righteousness is shown to be nothing more than a veneer. Righteousness means, at its root, right-relatedness. The older son was doing things in a way that made him appear righteous, but when he's put to the test, what is truly in his heart spills out like poison. He's angry, and he refuses to come into the party. And as we saw last week, the father is a father of reconciliation. His grace with the younger son is obvious, but he also humbles himself to come out to the older son whose refusal to join the party in public would have been offensive to the father. The father comes out to plead with his boy to come inside, but the son has to get some things off his chest. Look, I mean, for many years I have been serving you. I've never disobeyed a command of yours. You've never given me a young goat worth one-tenth the cost of a fattened calf. Never been thrown a basic party. Doesn't seem fair. But there's more beneath the surface that exposes the lostness of this child before his father. When he says, look, for so many years I have been serving you, the Greek text says literally, look, for so many years I have been slaving for you. Slaving for you. Is that how he views his relationship to his father? As a slave? As a servant? Isn't it ironic that the younger son, when he comes to his senses, comes home with a plan to declare himself a slave, thinking, I'm not worthy to be a son, I'll just come back to the family as a slave. But here the older son, who has all the rights and privileges that go along with that title, feels like a slave in his own home, feels stuck. Judging by the father's character in this parable, I find it hard to believe that this father made his older son feel like a slave. I think this is a matter of the heart. And it shows us that there's more than one way to be lost. The younger son's lost is external. It's obvious. He horribly offends his father. He follows his passions and his appetites that lead him to squander his inheritance on sins of the flesh. Like, it's so cliche. It's boring. He's the party guy, the empty soul, searching for anything and everything that will fill his heart, when in reality, the father has what he needs. When he comes to his senses, where does he go? Home. He goes home. He goes home. The older son represents those of us who have tried our hardest not to be the younger son. And some of us have been the younger son, in theory, and have come home, but now we're kind of comfortable and we're going through the motions and we're thinking that what the Father might want most from us now that he's rescued us from being in the distant land is to follow the rules and to do all the right stuff. The younger son comes home to find life 
Ironically, the older son who's already home finds himself to be slaving for the father. If the older son finds his worth in doing things in a certain way, then he's going to be judgmental against those who fail to live up to those standards. And he's going to be jealous and angry when the father shows mercy and grace to those who don't follow the same high standards. But what if the God who does call us, make no mistake, what if the God who does call us to obedience and to faithfulness, what if he loves us despite our performance? (laughs) I'm just like self-therapizing right now. Like That's cognitive dissonance for me. That's a difficult one to grasp. What if he wants, what if what God wants most is not for us to do things a certain way, but for us to know him in a certain way and to love him in a certain way and receive his love? How are you still lost? Maybe you've come home from the distant land of one type of sin only to find yourself enslaved expectations that that maybe God never put on you in the first place. Maybe you're judgmental against certain types of people who are living in a way that the Bible doesn't support, and some of you find it difficult not to judge people in the church. People in the church ought to better know better. But what if it wasn't our job to judge? What if our Father doesn't relate to you based on your performance, but on your response to Him? What if in seeing his compassion for others, we might extend that same compassion to them as well? And what if coming home for the older son is allowing himself to join the party and to receive the joy of salvation? I've referenced Henry Nouwen in each of these sermons because he's very much influenced my thinking about this parable. Up until now, though, we have not, as a group, in the sermons at least, considered his reflections on Rembrandt's return of the prodigal son. I'll ask Sophia and Ruth to throw that up on the screen there. There are five characters in this painting. I realize one of the new things with the screen is you can't use a laser pointer on it. It just like absorbs it. So you just have to find the five characters in the screen. There's the younger son, obviously, who's on his knees, battered, beaten. One shoe is completely off. The sole of his right foot is literally coming apart. He's in rags. He has no sword. His head is shorn, showing complete humiliation. Now, the father stands above his younger son with his head tilted lovingly, light on his head. He's wearing a noble robe, showing his authority and his honor. And in the distant upper left, there's a shadowy figure that people speculate to be maybe the mother of the family. The older son is in the back right. He's standing up, also dressed like a noble, sword at his side, a thick, healthy beard, but there's no joy, no joy on his face. And he stands outside the family, hands clasped, unwilling to enter into the joy of the situation. And then there's a strange man next to the older son with the funky hat on, and he's sitting down, kneeling down, and he has his right hand in a fist over his chest. You might ask, who could that be? I asked. I have no idea who that could be. Well, apparently, Renaissance commentators in the time when Rembrandt was painting found a close connection between the parable of the prodigal son 
and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In that parable, as Jen read earlier, a self-righteous Pharisee and a tax collector go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stands and declares to the Lord, I am so thankful, Lord, I am not like this sinful tax collector, where the tax collector, knowing his sin, kneels down and beats his chest, and all he gets out is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The parable illustrates the importance of humility in coming before the Lord. In this painting, Rembrandt painted the sinful tax collector next to the elder son, maybe to show a contrast between their two reactions. The older son is unmoved. He's bitter, maybe self-righteous. The older son has related to the father as if he were a hard man, not this compassionate and forgiving person. I ask myself, I ask you, is that how we see God? Is he the judge and jury who demands much and forgives little? Notice that the whole focal point of the painting, especially you art history people, um, isn't on the younger son, and it's not even on the father. The father's eyes even point to the focal point, which are his hands. His hands. Many have commentated on these hands. His left hand, your right, is masculine, broad, strong, powerful, authoritative. His right hand, it's been pointed out, looks feminine, slight, gentle. The older son, or sorry, is the compassionate hand of the father, the nurturing hand, the hand of forgiveness. Two different hands showing two different qualities, sides of one and the same father, justice and mercy married in one man, the father. The older son has chosen to see the hard hand of strength, and he's failed to appreciate the hand of grace. He's made himself unable to receive it. But the tax collector is kneeling in reverence, beating his own chest. He has eyes to see that in this act of compassion, forgiveness, and reconciliation, he too, in this moment, is reminded of his own need for these things on a regular basis. For those of you working so hard to hold your life together, it feels like you can hardly breathe. What would it feel like to be held by those hands of the Father. The strength and the grace, the nurture and the powerful assurance that if you are allowed to let your guard down, he is more than capable of handling your life better than you could have ever handled it. Thanks, Sophia. As we follow the text, we see that after the son's complaint, his father responds with these kind words of assurance. Again, in the Greek text, he doesn't just say son, he says child, technon, child, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Here's a profound truth that's right under our noses. This son, who had found his identity in following the rules and being a good son, was in reality rejecting the identity already given to him. He was already the son of this father simply by being born. He was already fully his son 
simply by being born. He didn't work for it or have to keep up a certain standard. He already had his birthright. He's complaining about how unfair it was for the younger son to receive such a celebration, but the whole time he'd been with his father, had all of those resources at his disposal. Is he now just jealous because his father is back, or his, his brother is back, and taking ad- advantage or re- rejoicing in these things? I think part of my lostness, and I wonder if part of your lostness, is that we don't fully live into our birthright. In a very true sense, don't roll your eyes or your royalty, in, a, in, a, in a, the truest of true sense, if God is our Father and He's made you in His image, then you are an image bearer of the living God. You've got royal blood in your veins. And the people sitting right next to you in front and behind you, even me, we have royal blood too. And so everyone you ever encounter, and every time you look in the mirror, you're looking at an image bearer of the living God. That gives you more value than you could ever drum up by following all the rules correctly. That's who you are before you did anything. That's such good news. I mean, I feel like I could sit down now as a preacher and have done my job. But I must go on. In the story, the father reminds his son, and he says that all that I have is yours. Yes, we live in a fallen world where much of the land is in the hands of a few, where housing prices are challenging, but there's another truth that won't be silenced. There's the truth that governments come and go, and property changes hands over time, and in the end, Jesus is going to bring his kingdom here, where we'll live with God as it was intended. But if you look closely, even now, in a kind of a a system and a world that's broken for the many and works uh, on the short term for the few, you cannot help, if you look with spiritual eyes, and see life springing up all around us. Urban gardens and fruit trees. I love that walk when you come down out of Fairhaven, you're going down to Marine Park on the right-hand side. It's kind of by those mudflats, and there's just these apple trees and cherry trees that are just laden with fruit. And you can just pick one if you rub it. I'm sure they use pesticides or something on there. But like, seriously, there's just like fruit out there and blackberries on the trails. And when you hike up in Mount Baker, there's wild blueberries and huckleberries. And you just get this sense that, that you cannot control life, that it's just bursting forth and that, that there's God's children have a right and a freedom to all of this stuff really cool. Many countries in the UK and in Scandinavia have laws allowing people to roam in open spaces and even sometimes traverse private property. And there's a sense that even in these very post-Christian lands, that the earth is a gift for all to enjoy no matter what your social economic status. And I think, even though those people want nothing to do with the church who are making these laws, I think that that type of thinking reflects latent echoes of our birthright as it's ingrained in the distant genetic knowledge of our very origins. We were created to thrive and to reign and to live together as as, as a collective of God's image bearers, his sub-creators. That's who you are. Now, the older son is unable to join the party because he didn't know the father. Sure, he lived with him, 
but he thought he knew what the father wanted. He just didn't know what really made the father happy. Relationship. Relationship. You are not defined today by your past or your future, by your successes or by your failures, by your job or the car you drive or by your friends or by your ethnicity. You are a child of God and an heir to his kingdom. Are you living? It's your birthright. Now, this parable has much to teach us about the Father and about ourselves as we find ourselves in, in a little bit in the, in the younger son, perhaps, a little bit in the older son, perhaps. But I would not be doing a good job as a preacher if I didn't bring us home to the main point of the whole chapter. It all started in the beginning of chapter 15 with Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees and the religious experts who were complaining with the types of people that Jesus was eating with. And as a response, Jesus told three parables, each intensifying his point. In the first, he talked about a shepherd who had 100 sheep. One of those sheep wandered off and got lost, and so the shepherd left the 99, found the one, brought the one home, and rejoiced, threw a party, and celebrated. Then he spoke of a widow who had ten coins and lost one, one out of ten, one-tenth of her livelihood. She went out to a great effort to find the coin, and when she did, she called her girlfriends together to celebrate. Jesus says that in the same way, all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents and comes home. Finally, he tells the story of a man with two sons, and one is lost, but really we know two are lost. From one out of a hundred, to one out of ten, to one out of two, and really two out of two, that's a hundred percent. Not a sheep, or a coin, but a human being. And this son came home, and the father called for a party, and he had to celebrate. Now Jesus does not tell us what the older son chose to do. Did he join the party? Or did he remain aloof and resentful, closing himself off to the grace of the Father? With the scribes and Pharisees as his audience, they are left to decide what to do. Jesus doesn't close the story off neatly for them. It's a point that he's saying, what will you choose to do, scribes and Pharisees? And I think it's asking us the exact same question. What will we choose to do? As uh, counterintuitive as it might sound, I believe that joining the party, that celebrating well, is one of the disciplines that can help us receive the joy of the Lord and break through whatever calluses are on our heart. For all of us who are prone to be like the older son, yes, I already know that there's a fine line between celebrating and being overindulgent. I'm not a very good celebrator. And yes, I know that it can be seen as extravagant or even irresponsible to celebrate when so much of the world is broken. There are always wrong reasons and wrong ways to do good things. That might be one definition of sin, actually. You can write that down. But in true celebration, Christian celebration, we are pausing to give thanks to God for every good thing that he's given to us. And it doesn't just have to be Easter and Christmas and churchy stuff. You can celebrate a birthday the wrong way or you can celebrate it the right way. 
You can celebrate the Feast of the Harvest a good way or a wrong way. A new job, a new birth, a friend coming over. You can do a lot of things the right way or the wrong way. And if we learn anything from this parable, it's this. That there's a party in heaven whenever one lost person comes home. Whenever one wanderer finds their way to the Father. Will we stand aloof and in judgment or will we see each turning to God as a source of celebration and a reminder that we too are in desperate need of his love and grace? Will we join the party? Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that when the scribes and Pharisees had the audacity to confront you in public in front of many, many people, saying quite ridiculous things about you, that you didn't just brush them off, that you didn't start arguing with them on point for point from the scriptures because you would have blasted them, but instead you decided to tell it slant and you told stories, and such magnificent stories, Lord, stories that continue to ask us the same question, where are we at in all of this, and will we come and join the party? I pray, Lord, for those who feel like they're in a distant land today, that they would see your graciousness and loving kindness and know that it is safe and good to come home to you. Lord, for those who have been in the position of the older son, who have been towing the party line, doing the right things, and find it difficult to receive those who are different and who are struggling and who are not model disciples of Christ, would you break through and give us hearts of compassion and mercy? We thank you, Lord, that you have something for everyone in this passage. By the power of your Spirit, reach us and change us. Amen.